May it please the court. My name is Jay Patrick Plunkett. I'm an attorney here in Minnesota, and I'm representing RS Eden. I'm joined today by Nick Pushner, uh, legal counsel, uh, who's at the table. Also joining us today is Dan Kane, who for the last 47 years has been the executive director, president of RS Eden. And before that, he was a client of RS Eden, and I think he was a client of other programs also. The commissioner's order of September 13, 2017 is wrong. And the reason it's wrong is it said that RS Eden is guilty of maltreatment of one of their clients because they failed to contact or attempt to contact Dr. Simon, who had prescribed a, quote, medication, close quote, to address his addiction problems. That wasn't a simple medication. It was Suboxone, a class three controlled. Counsel, substance. is there anything that prevents Eden um, House from giving the client their Suboxone when they leave? Yes, there is, Your Honor. The Minnesota rules provide for a distinction between basic medications and uh, controlled substances. And that rule is the Department of Health Rule 4665.4600. And it provides that uh, regular medications can be dispensed to the residents when they are discharged, but controlled substances are to be disposed of in accordance with the Minnesota Board of Pharmacy rules, and under those rules, the, uh, the uh, Suboxone could not be released for unsupervised use and had to be destroyed, and that's what happened. If, if the agency had applied for the waiver, would that change the answer to that question? Uh, it would, Your Honor, if the waiver had been granted, because it would have been a waiver of this particular rule. So that's what the waiver would have done, is allow them to do that. Mr. Plunkett, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I thought I saw something in um, uh, respondents' brief suggesting that Dr. Simon thought he could have uh, prescribed uh, Suboxone for, for JW and that he, in fact, would have done so had he been contacted. Um, was he wrong about that? Because if you're, if you're right that under the rule, um, this controlled substance had to be um, destroyed upon JW's discharge, then those, those, those don't seem consistent to me, but maybe you could help me with that. Your Honor, I think that what happened was Dr. Simon was talking hypothetical, that if he had been uh, the treating physician, he would have allowed it to do. That was his philosophy. <clears throat> but the department also suggested that Dr. Simon could have granted a waiver, which clearly was not correct. Uh, the other aspect of that is, is that uh, two days after JW left the facility, somebody from his family called Fairview and asked specifically about getting a renewal of the Suboxone prescription. This is in the record. And Fairview said, we can't do that. He is not one of our current clients. So I think that the department took a hyperbole and merely stated what would have been Dr. Simon's position if he was in a position where he could have done that. Counsel, what impact does it have on the fact that um, Dr. Simon was the ER doctor and not uh, his 
regular treating physician? I think it's huge, Your Honor. Uh, the distinction is this. He, he was a prescribing physician, but he was not a treating physician. And when you look at the rule, the rule talks about uh, the situation where you've got the treating physician and it, it says um, discharged and it, it also says specifically uh, if authorized by the attending physician or the residence physician. Dr. Simon was neither the attending physician nor the residence physician that would have allowed him to release the Suboxone. Now, in this particular case, JW did leave with medications, prescription medications, and that's because the attending physician was Dr. Potts at RS Eden, and he allowed it to happen. Counsel, do you uh, read that first line of um, the health rule for, I'm going to say point four six zero zero, as allowing um, uh, controlled substances to be, to be given to patients when they're discharged, or does the the third line control um, controlled substances as opposed to just medications? I think, Your Honor, that the first sentence deals with what I'll call garden variety medications, not controlled substances, and that the, the next part of that deals with the subclass. It says, however, if it's a controlled substance, then this is the rule that has to be followed. The, the rule doesn't specifically require medications to be destroyed, um, but it seems like everybody agrees that that's what the Board of Pharmacy regulations require for that, that, unused controlled substances. That's correct, Your Honor. And as I understand it, that was part of um, R.S. Eden's um, policy, and that policy was to destroy controlled substances when patients left. Is that correct? That is correct, Your Honor. And those policies were regularly reviewed. And by approved by DHS? And Department of Health as a part of their annual licensing procedure. Okay. So if there's something wrong with the policy, that would have been time, the time for the agencies. I mean, that was an opportunity for the agencies to let RS Eden know what it was doing wrong. Yes, Your Honor. Mr. Plunkett, I'm, I'm wondering, um, as I understand the department's position, it is that they did not make a finding of neglect because R.S. Eden um, failed to um, uh, release the Suboxone, but their finding of neglect was based upon the failure to call Dr. Simon. And I'm wondering, A, if you think, if you agree with me to, that I'm reading the record correctly, but also, is that, a, is that a substantive distinction or is that a distinction without a difference or, or how do we, how do we uh, address that? Your Honor, if we go back to the original determination in 2016, the determination by the department was specifically you failed to release to him this controlled substance, Suboxone, and therefore you are guilty of maltreatment. Their order was to pay $1,000, but their original order was also that you are to develop a plan and submit it to this department so that going forward, you will release Suboxone and other drugs. And it was only after the Court of Appeals, excuse me, after the Administrative Law Judge ruled against the department on every point that they began to focus on the Dr. Simon piece and said, well, maybe Dr. Simon could have done something. Maybe you could have talked to him. Uh, you, you should have talked to him. Um, why didn't you talk to him? Well, 
The law didn't require that they talk to Dr. Simon. There's nothing in the rules that said you have to. Dr. Simon didn't have any authority to... Um, but I wonder, Mr. Plunkett, would that, and maybe this is neither here nor there, but would that have been best practices, particularly given what RSE knew about JW's condition. I mean, when I looked at the, the discharge notes, it was very clear that the facility understood his, his vulnerability um, and his uh, you know, vulnerability to overdosing uh, if he were to walk out that door uh, without that Suboxone. So, I don't know, is that a, it's just a thought. What, what's your response though? Your, your Honor, my response is that one size does not fit all. Uh, there are some uh, drug treatment programs that want to keep people on Suboxone for the rest of their lives, no doubt about that. There are other ones who say, hey, we, we cannot have people uh, on Suboxone or other drugs for the rest of their life. Uh, RS Eden's a tough program. But, uh, Counsel, on that very point, what is RS Eden's philosophy on the use of Suboxone, which seemed to be critical for this individual? I think that the position can best be determined by its medical doctor, Dr. Potts. Dr. Potts is a very, very qualified physician, but he chose not to apply to have the right to prescribe Suboxone. But it, isn't that important? I mean, why would R.S. Eden accept um, someone who has a heroin addiction who is on Suboxone and wants to continue to use Suboxone? Why would you even admit somebody if you have a, a physician who has a completely different philosophy? Because he was admitted under a taper. And what was to happen is, is over his stay at RS Eden of several weeks, the amount of Suboxone that he would be on every day would be somewhat declining. As he went through withdrawal symptoms, there was clonidine which could help address the withdrawal symptoms. But he had been in 10 or 11 times. And I think in my opinion, what happened was Fairview said, hey, this guy needs help. Let's send him to a place for tough love. He'll get the Suboxone. Uh, the other thing is, is that if he had come back to R.S. Eden before he died, he would have gone back onto his taper. But R.S. Eden wants people to be off Suboxone by the time they leave their facility, Your Honor. Counsel, I, let's talk about some first principles here. I think everyone agrees that um, the decedent here was a uh, um, vulnerable adult while he was in the care of the uh, R.S. Eden facility. Am, am I right about that? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, and if I understand your position, um, he ceases to be a vulnerable adult insofar as that term is legally defined because he wasn't under any kind of com involuntary commitment order when he makes the decision to depart and physically departs from the facility. That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, and the department's position, as I understand it, um, is that he continues to be a vulnerable even though he's he has departed from the facility. Now, I'm going to ask them about that, but is that, am I correct, in, at least as far as you know, as to the, their position here? Your Honor, I think it's correct. The other thing that's interesting is, is when they marked up the, the decision by the administrative law judge, the administrative law judge specifically found that he was not a vulnerable adult when he entered R.S. Eden, but now he became a vulnerable adult in the languages there is sufficient evidence that J.W. had an impaired ability to protect himself from treatment at the time he was leaving R.S. Eden. So during that four, five or six day window, he moved from being a vulnerable adult 
not because he's at the facility, but because he doesn't have the coping skills. And the administrative, the administrative law judge says no. They marked up uh, his opinion now throughout to say he had, he was concerned, he was worried, he had um, you know, nightmares, whatever, and that made him a vulnerable adult. So I, th I think the real issue here is, is um, in effect, he couldn't even withdraw his consent. And when he walked out the door, he wasn't withdrawing his consent. He continued to be a vulnerable adult. And that raises the question, for a week, what about the 10 or 12 Council, programs? Council, what, what do you then think um, subdivision 21 paren 4 means when it says regardless of residence? What does that mean? Because the way I believe the department is interpreting it is, and again, we might have that discussion later about whether that's a reasonable interpretation, which is even when they leave, even when they leave your client's facility. Um, but so what do you think regardless of residence means? I think, Your Honor, what it, what it means is that a person uh, can still be a vulnerable adult even while they're not in the facility. But what is really interesting is subdivision two. Well, wait, 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 wait. So even when they're not in the facility or a facility? A, a facility, Your Honor. Because I was going to say, if it's the facility, then that cuts the other way. But you're saying it, it isn't a temporal thing. They can be, not temporal, a location that they can be anywhere. Your Honor, that's correct. But what is real interesting is subdivision two. And what subdivision two says is that um, a, a person who has um, a drug dependence, alcohol dependence, et cetera, is not per se a, a, an adult unless they also meet the requirements under part four. So there has to be something more than merely alcohol dependence or drug dependence to make them a vulnerable adult. And the, the cases show people who are psychotic, um, they have a guardianship that's been appointed to them. None of this happened here. And when he came in, he wasn't a vulnerable adult. I don't know how he became a vulnerable adult after he left. And if he was a vulnerable adult, then the 10 or 12 programs that he went through, shouldn't he be a vulnerable adult vis-a-vis -vis all of them? Because he left them, and even Fairview, he left them, and within the four hours before he got to R.S. Eden, he's out on the street using drugs. Council, isn't there also a related concept there of caregiver under um, subdivision four? And um, if, once, once um, JW left the facility, um, under that subdivision four, doesn't RS um, Eden cease becoming, cease being the caregiver? Your Honor, our position would be once the person voluntarily left, walked out, they are, RS Eden is no longer a caregiver, and that person is no longer a vulnerable adult vis-a-vis RS Eden, yes. And you have to be a caregiver to be liable for neglect under subdivision 17, right? Under uh, the maltreatment? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Counsel, I, uh, you've made a reference to Dr. Potts. Uh, who is he? Dr. Potts was the on-staff physician at R.S. Eden, Your Honor. Uh, but I, I, as I look at the uh, witnesses who testified at the hearing, I don't see his name listed. Did he not testify? 
He did not testify, Your Honor. I think it was the conclusion that it wasn't necessary because at that time the issues related to waiver, um, uh, other issues than this whole Dr. Simon piece. Is, I'm going to ask opposing counsel this as well. Is there anything in the record that Eden House violated the applicable standard of care for facilities of this type in not seeking a waiver or not releasing the Suboxone when JW left? Your Honor, I would say they did not violate best practices. They did not violate any law, rule, or regulation by not seeking a waiver in advance. Well, I realize this is not a medical malpractice case, although there may be concepts that are applicable here. But my question is, is there any testimony in the record that Eden House violated the applicable standard of care for facilities of this type? No, Your Honor, there is no such evidence. And counsel, am I correct that RS Eden is not a locked facility? It is not a locked facility, Your Honor. But there are locked facilities in the state and one can access them through perhaps a um, commitment proceeding? Your Honor, I don't know the answer to that question. But going back to the locked facility, if this person was a vulnerable adult and wanted to escape, I think that was the phrase he used with his mother, escape from R.S. Eden, R.S. Eden, given this, what the department's called an emergency, what, lock him up? Prevent him from going? Call the police to have him stopped? I mean, that's absolutely inconsistent with the whole concept of, of a withdrawal uh, of, from treatment. In, and In fact, counsel, J.W. said he was going to check in a new way. Is that right? That is correct, Your Honor. Now, is, was Eden House, in, what's your position as to whether Eden House was entitled to rely on that representation by J.W.? On the one hand, he says he's going to do it. On the other hand, he's in treatment. And it is possible that sometimes people who are in treatment don't always tell the truth about their intentions or they may have a different intention pretty quickly after they leave. To what degree may, should, should the um, commissioner have taken into account that representation by JW that he was going to go to New Way? Your Honor, before I answer your question, I'm gonna smile and laugh a little bit because uh, you're referring to Eden House, which tells me you're from Minneapolis. And uh, Eden House- Eden, excuse me. Yes, and, and uh, Reentry Services in St. Paul merged 20 years ago to form RS Eden, but its predecessor where Mr. Kane was, was Eden House. Um, your Honor, I, I, when, you, when you look at it and you say, this is their program, this is what RS Eden does, um, they don't prevent somebody from coming in. If you've on your 10th or 12th time, and yeah, he, he could have been very much misleading, stating I'm going. Uh, the record shows that when he entered uh, RS Eden, he was telling people, I've got a girlfriend, I wanna get sober, I wanna do all these good things. In the four hour window, he's out on the street using drugs. Council, does the record tell us if um, JW was on medical assistance? Your Honor, I do not recall whether that record says that or not. It's not jumping out at me that he was on medical assistance. Does the record tell us how JW got to RS Eden? Yes, Your Honor, he got to RS Eden because he was discharged from Fairview Hospital where he was in detox and they uh, discharged him to RS Eden. Was that pursuant to a court order or uh, was that his individual choice? 
Your Honor, I believe it was pursuant to a court order and the record states that. Counsel, I don't think you answered my question. Um, is RSE taking the position that it was entitled to rely on JW's representation that he was going to another treatment facility? Or what's your, what's your client's position on that? I think, Your Honor, our client's position is it doesn't matter whether he was going to another facility or not. So whether he was lying, not lying, intending to go, didn't go is irrelevant. So you're not, you're, you're not relying on that as part of your legal position? We are not, Your Honor. Counsel, one more question. Does the record tell us um, how much Suboxone Ms. JW had left? Yes, Your Honor, the record shows that because it was on a taper, it specifically will say how much it was left. The other aspect of that is that JW himself was self-prescribing, so he knew himself how much he had left. But does, does the record tell us how many doses he had left that was left behind at R.S. Eden? Yes, Your Honor. Counsel, I just want to make sure I'm clear on the, the waiver uh, piece of this case. It, is it your position that under the rule, R.S. Eden was not required to have a general waiver uh, on file, basically? That is our position, Your Honor, that they were not required to have a general waiver. And that's supported by what? What tells me that? that waiver is an option, Your Honor, and it, it talks in terms of may seek a waiver, may obtain a waiver. And in fact, the record shows that during the investigation, the Department of Human Services contacted the Department of Health about a waiver and was specifically told a waiver is optional, it's not required, and that is in the record, Your Honor. And so in this particular case, and maybe this is dovetailing with Justice Lillehog's question, as I look at um, .0600, the waiver provision, it says that a, you, a facility may request, and so your position, an individual waiver now is what I'm thinking of, you had, your client had the option of requesting an individual waiver, but chose not to do so in this instance. Is that correct? Your Honor, that is correct. And, and there's a couple other aspects of it. Uh, an individual waiver while he's leaving the door would have been, I don't know, anybody's guess as to whether it can be obtained. But in its order, uh, the department took the position that because JW had been in treatment many times, RS Eden should have had in place a general waiver and failure to have that general waiver in place for people like JW was itself an act of maltreatment. So they didn't say, and I'm, this is a question about the record, they did not say it was that the maltreatment determination was the result of not requesting the individ, an individual waiver. It was that your client didn't have a waiver on, a general waiver on file. Your Honor, I think the record will show both because the suggestion was is that R.S. Eden should have had a general waiver in place for these types of situations, but it also says that Dr. Simon should have been contacted about getting an individual waiver. So I think they were taking the position on both, Your Honor. Counsel, is, uh, I want to ask this, and I'll ask opposing counsel as well. Is there anything in the record stating what the standard of care is for facilities of the sort ERS Eden is as to whether general waivers are or are not sought? Your Honor, there is nothing in the record that would state what the standard of care was. I recall that there was a suggestion that a lot of organizations have that waiver, but certainly not all of them, and there's nothing in... Is there evidence in the record that, an, that comparable organizations have sought and obtained such general waivers? Uh, no, Your Honor. Can, can I just come back to the individual waiver? 
So I, and just to clarify something you suggested, but I don't know if I, I just totally understand, is would RS Eden have had standing to seek a waiver once JW left the facility? You just mentioned something as he was walking out the door. I mean, would, would there have been, would, would you, what would the basis for seeking individual waiver for someone that was no longer at your facility? Your Honor, I do not know the answer to that question uh, because it, it never came up. But if you look at the, the, there aren't any cases in Minnesota dealing with failure to obtain a waiver because it was not required. It was not required under the law, it was not required under practices. I think it's anybody's guess if an individual waiver had been th sought after the person left, whether the Department of Health would say, well, it's too late. The other thing is, is the Department of Health has to now debate, discuss, decide whether an individual waiver should be granted. It's not a waiver of just um, Suboxone, it's a waiver of the entire rule. So uh, by the time they could have even acted on a, a waiver of the release rules, JW had died. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Jose. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court and counsel. My name is Heather Jost, and I represent the Commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Human Services today, Tony Laurie. The Commissioner determined- Counsel, can you um, help me figure out how it is that the Commissioner can find maltreatment on a basis of a um, choice that RS Eden has. They can either apply for the waiver or not. There's no mandatory language that I found that says that they had to do that. So when it's a may and not a shall, how is it possible that the Department of Human Services can make a finding of maltreatment? Um, that, that's a very good question and thank you, Your Honor. Uh, as far as the waiver is concerned, I believe that uh, the court doesn't need to reach the question on the waiver issue to resolve the issue today because uh, standing alone, uh, the failure to contact Dr. Simon could constitute maltreatment. But in answer to your question, no, there, the, there is no language in a rule or a statute that, that says they should that, or th that they, they must have obtained a waiver. Um, but the statute at issue, 626.5572, uses the words reasonable and necessary. And the issue is whether a phone call to the physician or the waiver would be reasonable and necessary in these particular circumstances given this particular adult. That and seems to be a rather subjective, you know, because there might be other people in the Department of Human Services who would say R.S. Eden handled everything reasonably. So I don't know that that's so fair if, if, it's, not, if it's not a standard that by which they would know. I mean, if it's not a may or it's not a shall, it's a may. And then for the treating or for the ER doctor, Dr. Simon, he wasn't his treating physician. So ER docs generally don't prescribe on an ongoing basis when they only see them the one time in the ER. So help me figure out how you get to maltreatment. Certainly. Well, this was a judgment call 
that the commissioner entrusted to the licensed facilities. Um, the, the commissioner relies on licensed facilities who have legal control over their program and own the evaluation of uh, their patient's care to make those judgment calls in, in the facility on a patient by patient basis. But RS Eden did not make that judgment call. They simply said, no, we cannot release this substance. They didn't think of things that they could have done. They, couldn't, they didn't take a look at their toolbox and do things that they had the ability to do given this particular vulnerable adult's needs. Council, if this is a judgment call, then presumably there's a standard of care in connection with exercising that judgment. And I wanna ask you, what is the evidence in the record that RS Eden violated the applicable standard of care? First of all, what is the applicable standard of care and whether they violated the standard of care in presumably Dr. Potts, the attending physician, not making a call to the prescribing physician? Well, to answer your question, no, I, I do not think that there is any specific evidence within the record, record as to what constitutes the standard of care for a chemical dependency treatment facility. Uh, what? Well, that's that's interesting that you can see that because then, then the question as to what is reasonable and necessary, doesn't that have to be judged, especially on a medical decision against a standard of care? Yes, it, it does, and what, you, what we do is we take a look at, and the statute contemplates this, the maltreatment by neglect statute, you take a look at what is reasonable and necessary given the vulnerable adult's mental, physical capacity, dysfunction, given their needs. So to have a general standard of care is one thing, but the statute contemplates specific standards of care based on specific patient's needs on a fact-by-fact -fact So is there testimony in the record that RSC violated the standard of care in this instance by the attending physician or someone at the facility not contacting a prescribing physician? What is that evidence in the record? Uh, yes, yes, there is substantial evidence in the record. Uh, first off is that RS Eden is a treatment facility that specializes in patients that have difficult and complicated needs, and it's, they're associated with the criminal justice system, for example, and they've had multiple and repeated treatment admit, admittance, admit, experiences. Uh, and it's also a matter of RS Eden's policy that they tailor their, uh, their treatment to a patient's individualized needs. But counsel, in this instance, why would um, the Commissioner of Health license or have as an option uh, for RS Eden to accept clients who are on Suboxone when their primary physician at the treating, at the facility, doesn't really believe in that and actually is not licensed to prescribe it. I mean, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. Was your question what the, the commissioner of Because, health? okay, so the Eden, RS Eden is licensed and as part of their license, they are, they are able to accept patients and with certain conditions. Why would their license include accepting patients who are on Suboxone when their treating physician at the facility doesn't believe in the use of Suboxone and is not licensed to prescribe Suboxone? That, that seems to be a big problem. Uh, I don't know that there is uh, anything in the record as to what uh, 
they are specifically licensed to do other than provide chemical dependency treatment uh, services. Both their dual license, both through the, the Department of Health and the Department of Human Services. Um, so whether or not it was a condition of their license that they need to hire someone that can prescribe these controlled substance medications, uh, I, I don't know that, that I can answer that question. But Would that not have been helpful to the investigation as to whether there was maltreatment or not? What is helpful, um, yes, but uh, I think the investigation was um, comprehensive in that uh, you're right, it, it, it should have been prepared to meet the needs of the particular clients that they hold themselves out to serve. And one of the things that they could have done was employ uh, a physician or that uh, had the ability to prescribe and consult and had considerable knowledge of the Suboxone, which were, is were why- they were, well, let, me, let me ask a, a, a little different take on the question that Justice Lillehog asked. Um, we've had a lot of discussion here about what you think, and what, I shouldn't say what you but think, what the commissioner thinks they should have done, they being R.S. Eden here. What legal authority does the commissioner rely on for the proposition uh, that it is maltreatment to not call an emergency or to not call an emergency room physician from a different facility? Or neglect, that it is neglect. That it is neglect, thank you, thank you. That it is neglect. Well, a few different things, and it, it both hits us. Uh, Go ahead. Go uh, ahead. Substantial evidence. It's not arbitrary and capricious. It's not an error of law here. Um, for the the reason that I, I mentioned earlier is that they hold themselves out to be specialized to these individual client needs. But then also there is uh, the the Dr. Potts issue that that he could not have. So it was reasonable. Uh, all of that goes to a dispute among medical professionals about what to do, um, and. I don't think that gets you there. I think where that gets you is that there's a dispute. Uh, there's no rule, as I read your brief, that says you have to have a treating physician that can pres prescribe this drug. What I'm looking for is a hook, a legal hook, for the commissioner to disregard the findings of the administrative law judge. What's that legal hook? The legal hook is the statute itself and tailoring their needs to the specific vulnerable adults. What was necessary for this particular vulnerable adult, and I think that uh, a factual hook in that is that at the time of his discharge, uh, R.S. Eden had in his records that he was had a risk of harm to others and a harm to commit suicide, which is it would be reasonable for the facility to follow up, to use the tools in its toolbox to could see they what have, they could, could they have stopped him from leaving? In the record, it states that they, they could not have, but there is the question of whether or not they could have put a hold on him prior to his discharge and uh, under Chapter 253B, there are certain circumstances. But Council, the facility doesn't have the ability to put a hold on him. They would have had to call law enforcement. He did have a probation officer, and yes, they, they would have had to call law enforcement. So but this is kind of this is kind of getting this that answer is kind of getting to one of my concerns about this case, and, and I want to ask specifically about the um, the argument that they should call Dr. Simon. And I'm going to read from your your brief here. Um, if contacted, Dr. Simon may have counseled R.S. Eden on treatment strategy, whether that involved another prescription, advice to obtain a waiver, or any other suggestion as how to treat J.W.'s presentation of symptoms. 
there's nothing in the record that I can see that you have shown that Dr. Simon would have actually done anything or could have actually done anything. It's all speculation. So how can you form a neglect maltreatment decision based on speculation that a call that wasn't requ necessarily required to be made, but if it was required to be made, would, you, you, don't, you don't tell us anything that would have actually happened to help JW. It's all speculation. How, how does that play out here? Well, Dr. Simon did testify that had R.S. Eden reached him, he would have informed them to release the Suboxone to JW. But could he have? Could he have authorized them to do that? He, he, he may, he, he could have other, he, he could Wait, have. he may have or he could have? And what's the basis for could have? There are a number of things that uh, Dr. Simon could have done had uh, R.S. Eden reached out and, and was able to contact him. The first was that he could advise them to release the Suboxone. The second was but, he possibly could but have. But what, what authority does Dr. Simon have them to give them the authority to release the Suboxone? He was the, well, under the rule 4665.4600, that topic sentence there, the first sentence is upon release, uh, upon uh, attending or residence physician. And is he an attending or resident physician? I think in this case, yes. Yes, and here's and what's, why. Okay. Uh, because uh, he wasn't the attending physician, that's clear. Dr. Potts was the attending physician. Dr. Potts could not authorize the prescription of Suboxone or otherwise consult on the drug. JW didn't list a residence physician on his intake form. So it is R.S. Eden's argument that he didn't have a physician, but the only physician of JW's that could assist with his specific withdrawal systems, symptoms and the Suboxone medication, which he had manifested and, and told his treatment professionals he had an issue with, was Dr. Simon. Dr. Simon was listed on the bottle of the prescription. But does, so are, is, there, is it the department's position then that Dr. Simon could have basically instructed or authorized R.S. Eden to release the Suboxone that R.S. Eden had? It, it, it is possible. Is it your position that that's the case? I mean, what's the legal basis for that? Uh, it's, it's more of a factual basis. Uh, the factual basis is that Dr. Simon testified that that's what he would have told R.S. Eden to do. But that's a different from what I'm asking. I'm not asking what Dr. Simon would have told them to do. I'm asking what authority Dr. Simon had to authorize them to actually let the Suboxone go. That's different than he might have suggested that that's what they should do. Well, under the rule, uh, Dr. Simon being a JW's physician that could prescribe you, you know, but counsel, I think that's the problem here. The patient doesn't regard Dr. Simon as his treating or as his treating physician or whatever you call him. He doesn't list him as his treating. There's no evidence in the record that he's the treating physician. The only evidence in the record is this doctor saw him, as I understand it, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, this doctor saw him one time as an emergency room physician, and that's it. And, and the question that I think I'm asking you is the same question that other people have asked. What's the legal hook that puts Dr. Simon in that position of authority here? Dr. Simon had seen JW on a number of occasions, and he was his treating physician throughout JW's stay at Fairview Hospital, which I believe was a number of days. Uh, so he was very familiar 
with JW and he had treated him multiple times rather than just once. I, I, can, I can see where he would be a valuable resource. I agree with you on that. And I, and I think it's even reasonable to say, gee, maybe they, maybe R.S. Eden should have called him or could have called him as you suggest. But in terms of his, in terms of him being the, the physician for the patient, when the patient himself doesn't claim that, doesn't that argument become a little difficult here in terms of holding this particular party legally responsible? No, and here's why. Authority for that, okay. Uh, could, 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 I, could I just jump in? Because I have a question directly to the legal authority, and that's that um, Department of Health rule that they interpret as saying all controlled substances must be destroyed. So that's a... Another, um, you know, when you're looking for a legal hook, that's that's a big obstacle. It seems. Yes, and um, Rule Four Six Six Five Forty Six Hundred states authorized by a physician, and that's the issue we're talking about. And our Cedens policies reflected that, uh, but our Cedens staff was unaware of the possibility of a waiver or the bulletin. And so we have the, the rule that says, if authorized by the physician, and then we also have the bulletin that says, uh, if you want a blanket waiver, you need to get an order from a physician that- Do, Doesn't the fact that there are individual and generalized waivers show that you have to destroy con controlled substances? That this first sentence of, 4665.4600 only applies to non-controlled substances. And the commissioner would disagree with that interpretation. You take a look at medications, if you have a Venn, a, a Venn diagram, for example, you have medications and then you have the prescription medications and then you have the controlled substance medications. So if you read the rule in its entirety, uh, you have that medications can be distributed to patients upon discharge uh, if authorized by physicians, uh, what to do with unused portions of controlled substance medications, and what to do with unused portions of prescription drug medications. And that actually makes sense when you take a look at the bulletin, which also says that if authorized by a physician that can prescribe that particular controlled substance medication, that uh, the facility wishes to have a blanket waiver for, um, then that blanket waiver can be in place Count, and then the facility can I, I don't think that can be right because one of the conditions of the waiver is an order of a healthcare practitioner, um, you know, authorizing a prescribed substance to be released. I just think that, I think that read all together, um, you can't, uh, this type of facility can't release controlled substances um, unless it gets an individual or, or, or a general waiver. And to get an individual or a general waiver, uh, it would have to be authorized by a physician. So in any event, it was reasonable for RSEDEN to contact a physician who could give authorization. And in this case, the only physician that could give authorization for JW would be Dr. Simon because he's the only physician that can actually prescribe that controlled substance. Counsel, Counsel isn't I, I your... Isn't your, I'll go. <laughs> I'm just wondering if you're, in answer to Justice Chudich's question, it, I'm looking at um, 
oh, Exhibit 103, which is the Department of Health's July 24, 2004 information bulletin. And in the second paragraph, they say, current licensure provisions, and they don't specify what those are, but it says current licensure provisions require that all licensees destroy controlled drugs and thus prohibit individuals and slash responsible parties from taking their controlled drugs with them when discharged. So isn't that inconsistent with what you just told Justice Shudish that that first sentence in .4600 medications applies also to control drugs. Those, those two seem to be inconsistent to me. Am I reading that incorrectly or how do we uh, reconcile those? I, yes, well, that is a very good question and that is a tough question and we do need to reconcile those, the rule with the bulletin. Um, the disposition of medications can, can the, the controlled substances and the prescription drugs can be treated the same within the rule um, so we have, uh, in, in the language of the bulletin as well as the rule, we have that they can be distributed to the patient if there is some authorization from the physician. So why, so if you take a look at statutory construction, which we were all familiar with, why would they put that sentence in the rule? Why would the rule be titled disposition of medications? And why would that be a standalone sentence and then a sentence down, what to do with unused portions of controlled substances, and then a sentence down, what to do with unused portions of prescription drugs? If you read that together, and they're not even parsed out into subparts, how, how could you not construe that as medications being everything and that you, would, you could distribute them to patients if not? Now, the bulletin is not the rule. The rule controls. The bulletin is the department's interpretation and- uh, is, the, is that a rule, a Department of Health rule or a Department of Human Services rule? It's a Department of Health rule. And so we, we have the bulletin, which- uh, But you also had the investigator contacting the Department of Health about it, the interpretation of this rule, and they said the facility followed the, the rule. Yes, that is correct. The facility I, did follow the rule. And, it, and that, my question about what, whether it's a Department of Health rule or Department of Human Services rule, you know, typically we defer to agency interpretations. So do we, def because it's a health rule, do we defer to the Department of Health's interpretation as opposed to the Commissioner of Human Services interpretation? Well, that's why the investigator from the Department of Human Services contacted uh, someone from the Department of Health. So we should defer to the Department of Health's interpretation. And the Department of Health did say that they followed the rule because they hadn't had, they did not have authorization from a physician to release it. So had RS Eden released it without authorization from a physician, they would have been in violation of the rule. So they are correct there. Does the resident define who their physician is when it says resident's physician? Or is that something the Department of Human Services defines what a resident's physician is? And there's no statutory definition for what is a resident's physician. Well, except it says resident possessive physician. Yes. So doesn't that tell us that it's the physician the resident thinks is his physician? Well, and whether the resident thinks it's his physician or whether that's actually the physician that, you know, prescribed the medication or that is the controlling physician to assist the, uh, the individual with its with, with its issue. And so it's, a resident it's, could have a physician without understanding that the physician is his physician. Can you repeat the question? The resident 
could have a physician under the rule without the resident actually understanding that a particular physician is the resident's physician. That's the department's position. In this particular case, and I don't wanna make a blanket assumption for cases moving forward on the definition of what or what could be the resident's physician, but in this particular case with this vulnerable adult who had no cognitive uh, ability to, to arrest his withdrawal symptoms, I mean, he, he was a vulnerable adult and the intake, his- But a vulnerable program, adult who could leave the facility and go out on his own, I mean, if he is a vulnerable adult, I guess that's a legal question. Right. Um, I have one other question. That's what do we make of the Department of Health approving? There's also this general waiver question and the policy that was adopted. What do we make of the Department of Health reviewing the licensing and reviewing the policies uh, on a, I don't know if it's an annual or every two year basis. Should we give any uh, weight to the fact that they've reviewed these policies, that the Department of Health has reviewed these policies and didn't find them to be problematic? I no, I don't think you you can give any any weight to that because there's a, a distinction. But why not, Council? Because it seems to me that it's up to R.S. Eden and their legal counsel, frankly, if they want to pursue the waivers because obviously with the waivers comes liability. So how is it that the department can usurp essentially that that conversation that R.S. Eden may have with their counsel as to whether they want to take on that liability? I, I'm not. I don't see how. You can enforce that when one, what Justice Thiessen says, you've, the agency has actually reviewed their policies, has not found them to be problematic, and then seems like they wanna get in between. If they, just, if they choose to not have the waivers for liability purposes, how can they be found that they have maltreated for not getting the waiver? And I'd like to answer your question in two parts. First is that this court need not even address the waiver issue because standing alone, the, the commissioner's decision for maltreatment based on uh, the failure to contact Dr. Simon, which I believe is what the petition for review put before this court. But then second, specific to your question regarding the policies, uh, there's a distinction that can be made between the adequacy of the policy and not following the law. And RS Eden, it did adhere to its policies, but it still did not provide the necessary and reasonable care. Not all reasonable actions can be listed or bullet pointed in every policy. Uh, and in JW's case, there were tools that were available to meet his particular needs to call the physician or to try to obtain a waiver. Um, and a policy not being cited by the Department of Human Services as inadequate is not a defense to maltreatment under the maltreatment statute. Council. Got some more questions for you, so stay there, please. Help me, uh, I want you to summarize again for me um, what, as some of my colleagues have, have uh, referred to it as the legal hook for uh, why RS Eden was required or should have contacted Dr. Simon. What I'm understanding from you is at least part of the legal hook is this requirement to provide necessary and reasonable care to an individual vulnerable adult. Um, so part of my question is where is that language? You, you quoted the rule. Can you tell me the specific rule, the specific provision that requires that? That would be 626.5572 subdivision 17A. 
Okay. And that's the failure omission by a caregiver to supply the vulnerable adult with care services, which includes health care in this case, that is reasonable and necessary to maintain the vulnerable adult's physical or mental health or safety, considering the vulnerable adult's physical and mental capacity or dysfunction. And so your position is in this particular case, R.S. Eden had an obligation to at least contact Dr. Simon. Now, what he might or might not have been able to do seems to be an issue of some dispute, but your position is that as the last known physician who had, who had prescribed Suboxone for this individual, that would have been a logical and necessary call, a reasonable and necessary call in light of this statutory provision, and that their failure to do so was maltreatment. Is that essentially the department's position? Yes, that is the department's position. And just to further that, they could have done that while JW was at the facility, which is undisputed. He was in a vulnerable. So following up on that, they could have, as he's walking out the door, said, wait a minute, JW, um, we'll call Dr. Simon and at least find out whether or not we can get this Suboxone for you, that that's, that's, that was a reasonable course of action. That would be a reasonable course of action. They also could have contacted him prior to him standing at the door because he had told his counselor the day before two times about his issues with the Suboxone and that he was thinking of leaving the facility. And R.S. Eden did actually contact Dr. Potts and they had the opportunity and the time for JW to, to sit down with Dr. Potts and to get a prescription for something else. So. Uh, R.S. Eden committed maltreatment while J.W. was at the facility for a, a good possibly 24 hours. Justice Judich. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me, though, because they didn't know he was leaving when they contacted Dr. Potts, and he had Suboxone for the next uh, four weeks or three weeks. So I don't think, I think there was a very small window, and that, that was my question, from the time they saw him with his bags ready to go and when he left, how, I think the record shows it was maybe they had 10 minutes, is, is that correct? The record shows that it was under an hour um, that they knew, they tried to talk him into staying and, and of course, and then they went and got his, uh, his bipolar medications for him. So there was some time where they knew he was leaving and he was standing at the door. And uh, it's, it's clear that the maltreatment occurred uh, when JW was walking out the door of the facility without any plan to address his need for Suboxone. But the commissioner would not be wrong to, and it's substantially supported by the record that the maltreatment occurred the day before he left because JW had mentioned it and they, they knew he had a history. And actually here's an important point, I know I'm out of time, but it goes to your question directly, is that upon intake in his treatment plan, I believe it's exhibit seven, I can find it, um, I don't wanna waste any time. Uh, they assigned him a paper and that paper was entitled, how do I continue my taper of Suboxone without using and how do I make sure I don't leave the facility? So they knew upon intake that he had issues with his taper and that he had issues with leaving the facility and they asked him to present that paper to his group. So uh, they knew upon intake, they knew throughout his stay, and they knew upon his discharge that he had, that this particular patient had issues with his Suboxone medication and leaving the facility. So it's reasonable 
for the commissioner to conclude based on all of that information in the record as a whole that uh, he was a vulnerable adult residing at the facility when the maltreatment occurred. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Plunkett, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. Ever since this case began, the department's position keeps moving. And we heard today for the very first time that Iris Eden should have contacted Dr. Simon the day before JW left. Because at that time, Iris Eden knew that JW was having problems. So now it's not just contact Dr. Simon as he was leaving, should have done it the day before. The other thing we hear for the first time today was that R.S. Eden had the ability to employ a physician who could prescribe the Suboxone. Dr. Potts wasn't the right physician for them. And the other thing we heard today was that only Dr. Simon could deal with the withdrawal symptom. Well, Dr. Potts prescribed the clonidine before JW was even leaving, and clonidine is, helps assist with the withdrawal symptom. In this case, Your Honor, R.S. Eden has not violated any law, rule, or regulation. They have not in any way not followed best practices. Their policies and procedures have been reviewed regularly and approved by all the applicable licensing authorities. With all due respect to the department, Your Honor, we are asking that this court determine that the department's order should be reversed and that R.S. Eden should not be deemed to have committed uh, malpractice by neglect. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.